I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. The Andy J Podcast. Podcast. Well, hi there. Welcome to the very latest Andy J podcast. I hope you are having a great week. Thank you for choosing us. Let me tell you about today's guest. It's a really cool conversation that I'm absolutely buzzing about. He's just written a book called No One Listens to Your Dad's Show. He was a man who was sitting on top of the radio throne. He had hosted breakfast radio here in the UK forever. And actually, he is the UK's most awarded radio DJs in terms of awards. He has won everything many, many, many times. He decided, however, in a sort of sort of midlife crisis moment, but there was a much, much more resonating reason for this. He decided to quit, to just stop and to change everything. So he took his family down under. Despite the fact that he didn't know anyone there, he left the UK and set up sticks in Australia to become a radio show host over there. Christian O'Connell. I mean, wow. Let me, I'll tell you what, let him tell you the story. Thank you for your company. Thank you for choosing this show. Please do write some nice words about us. Give us a five-star review if you'd be so kind. That would be most appreciated. But let's dive straight in. This is a really gripping chat with Christian O'Connell. Hey, you're listening to The Andy J Show. Now, I am very, very, very pleased. I mean, that's that's three times happy and delight to welcome my next guest. He's a man, well, he's basically had it all. He's had all the listeners, all the awards, and then he's kind of thought to himself, UK Radio completed it, mate. It's time for a change. Although there was a pretty significant thing that prompted that change. You already know who it is. It's the marvellous Mr. Christian O'Connell. How you doing, Christian? Oh, very good. Thank you very much for letting me on your show. I'm very excited to chat to you, Christian. You have a new book out, No One Listens to Your Dad's Show, which, by the way, kudos for that. It is my second favourite titled book ever. Wow, what's number one? Uh, Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Yeah, it's a great title of a book. I'm happy to be number two. I'm happy to be out on the uh, the Mount Rushmore of your favourite book titles. (laughs) Well, you know, and you'll appreciate this, Christian, there was a danger I was going to go a little bit Christian O'Connell meets Stephen Seagal because, of course, a big fan of yours, but I couldn't go too sycophantic and tell you I'm the top, you know, that's the top name book. I respect you for going in number two. uh, It stops it becoming a bit awkward for both of us. (laughs) Uh, You didn't make it weird. Thank you. I'm relieved. Also, to be fair, the book I've mentioned about everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face, that's Tony Bellew. I can't, you know, I can't go up against him. No, 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 don't, don't. No, I don't want to go up against him. He's a, I don't want him thinking he wants to take both of us on. And he could, to be fair. I know you do a bit of boxing, but he he's done a lot. Yeah, there's doing a bit of boxing, you know, and hitting some pads with a trainer you've hired, you know, and then there's what Tony did, which is doing it for a living, yeah. you know, and going against big, dangerous men and win, winning a world title. It is a great book as well. I've read Tony's book. It's a great read. It's good. It's a good read, as is yours. And of course, we're going to dive into this because we've set this up already, Christian, and the world knows this, especially our UK listeners. They all knew you. You were on the radio in a massive way. Well, I, don't think all, I don't think all the ones. There's probably a cut. Maybe a couple would have done, you know. Um, oh, come there on. Were lots, there was a lot. I know. Listen to me. But uh, yeah, no, I don't think everyone would be over familiar with who I am, especially because I've been out in the UK and off radio. For three years, you know, since I moved to Australia and been doing breakfast radio in uh, in Melbourne for the last three years. But bless you. Thank you. You know how this goes, Christian. I mean, you know how it works. When you wake up with the nation and you keep them going for as long as you did, it's not like you were on for six months and then, oh, well, that was a fun six months. You were on forever and ever and ever. About, you know, about a thousand years, you were you were the top DJ in, in the breakfast land. And therefore along with the likes of your Chris Evanses and your Terry Wokens and so on, that you have name traction. You know that. Of course you do. It's a very privileged position to do radio in the morning, right? Be somebody's 
friend for whether listening for 10 or 15 minutes. And yeah, I've been in breakfast radio now 23 years, 20 in the UK. Uh, and, you know, I'd had people that their mum or dad used to make them listen to my show on the school run. Then suddenly they've left home, they're growing up. You know, suddenly they've got children and they're making their kids listen to school run. You, you grow with your audience, you know, and it's an amazing thing. And then when you leave, it's, uh, it's, uh, it was actually really heartbreaking leaving to come to Australia um, because you kind of like, you've, you've just been a part of their lives. It's a, it, you know, radio, radio is really important to us, isn't it? It's huge. And it's like you say, I mean, I can still remember heading into my GCSEs, for example, and I can remember Zoe Ball playing a playing a track on the radio and the way she was chatting. And that woke me up. That got me in the zone. That got me started. You know, and then I still remember mm. when she left the Radio One Breakfast show being kind of gutted. Who, who was I going to wake up with then? This Thankfully, this predates your time on Breakfast Radio, so you can't say, hang on, wait a sec, you mean you were listening to someone else? Because I imagine you allude to this in the book as well. You get that a lot. Everyone says, oh yeah, I listen to the other guy. It's just that thing people want to share that's probably not true and completely unnecessary. Yeah, I mean, it's a strange job. People always want to go, I don't, I don't listen. Sorry, I don't listen to you. Yeah. I'm Mora, and then you insert who they listen to. And you, you wouldn't get that in any other job. You wouldn't, you know, say, I'm sorry, you're not my plumber. I use Ray, you know, Ray's, Ray's good, but you're not, I don't want you thinking that I'm ever going to use you as a plumber. People love to say, no, I'm sorry, I don't listen to you. Yeah. You know, just they just want to get that out there straight away. There's been a trend as well, Christian, that I've noticed about the last five years with people telling you they haven't got a telly. Like it's a kind of badge of office, you know, when they, when they sort of say to me, oh, what do you do? And I say, oh, I've got this telly show out, whatever. Oh, I haven't got a telly. Right. Who doesn't have a telly Everyone's in this day and age? Yeah. What an amazing cop out. That's not. <laughs> you know, wow. You, you kind of want to That's say to them. really something. You want to sort of say to them, I, I'm okay with you not recognizing me. That's fine. I'm not famous. I've just done a couple but of let's shows. But not, let's not embarrass both of us <laughs> by the whole, I've not got a telly. Everyone has a telly. Yeah. Yeah. Even, I mean, yes, exactly. So I was, I'm always slightly disarmed when people say that. Cause you're like, and it's happened quite a lot, Christian. I've heard it quite a few times now. I don't know if you're starting to get it on the other side of the pond, but I'm getting a few of these. I haven't got a telly. Okay, sure. Of course you don't. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if Martin Scorsese has, but was saying, I'm sorry, I, uh, I hate the cinema. Yes. So I don't like, I've never seen a movie. I've never seen a movie. I don't, I, I don't you know, saying to Mick Jagger, um, I haven't got, I haven't got, I haven't got a vinyl player. I haven't got Spotify. I haven't got music. I don't like music. I don't listen. I to don't music. like music. Don't, Sorry, <laughs> Mr. Jagger. I don't like music. I don't even know what it is you're talking about. I avoid all music. It's what? What is it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's exactly that. Uh, well, look, Christian, we, and we've got to talk about the headlines, of course, and I want to talk about the evolution of Christian O'Connor as well, because, of course, your, your persona from your time early days in the UK, very much that sort of confident alpha male funny man. You were, you were the kind of, you were the go-to guy. We knew we were going to get a pizzazz in the morning with you. And then, and then the sort of vibe has changed. And part of that is what's happened to you sort of seven or so years ago. Part of that I would suggest is fatherhood and the way that's changed, etc. But why don't we, before we get into how and why you moved to Australia, can we take a little walk through your childhood and just get you into the groove of how you became the man we listened to on the radio, the man that was called a radio's ratings magnet, which is which is pretty cool as well. Yeah, I mean, well, we, we're getting into it. This is kind of like, this is your life. Well, I Whoa, mean, childhood. Not? Let's yeah, well, do it. Why not? Let's 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 start where it starts. You know, you had a love, as you've described it yourself, a lovely little council estate in Winchester. Your mum was a nurse. Your dad worked at Ford. None of that necessarily says radio DJ in the future. What was it? What was it that started for you? What was the spark in your childhood that made you go, "I want to entertain people and make them laugh"? There were two things that happened in the same year. One, Steve Wright, Steve Wright in the afternoon. And I know so many comedians and writers, people like Paul Whitehouse, Harry Enfield, they all name check the influence that Steve Wright in the afternoon back on Radio 1. It was like radio we'd never had before in this country. No one had really done that sort of posse zoo format, which is now kind of the norm for certainly breakfast radio all over the world. Steve kind of brought it in from Rick Dees in America, and it was subversive. It was cheeky. I'd never heard a radio DJ doing that. Um, who wasn't just sort of talking about what was on TV last night or getting excited about the weather or the travel news coming up. Steve wasn't that. He played around with uh, with the format of radio, and I found it so exciting. Um, 
that and seeing Billy Connolly on TV. Oh, yeah. And I never seen, my, I never saw my mum and dad laugh so hard. And it was like, he looked like a wizard. He does look like a wizard, yes, Billy. Yes, he does. And yes, it, he does. it blew me away, that kind of long-form storytelling. And I was working class and felt quite embarrassed about it. A lot of my friends were something called middle class. And I didn't know it was called that then. They just had things like dessert after tea. And they had crunchy gravel driveways. And they went skiing. Billy Connolly was taking the mickey out of his working class roots. And it was so refreshing to me. I was like, wow, he's being so honest about his life. And so, yeah, Billy Connolly, Steve Wright, all in the same year, in the 80s, as a teenager, two lightning bolts. I was like, whatever they're doing, I want to do that, either stand-up or radio. And I've been very lucky to sort of do both of those. But radio will always be my first love and what I've been lucky enough to do for the last 23 years of my life. Yes, indeed. And and you've done it at the highest levels and, and all the accolades, all the awards and now on both sides of the pond, pretty pretty much nailed that one. Love it. However, of course, it didn't just start. You didn't just go, oh, I'm going to be on the radio and I'm going to make people laugh and do some comedy and so on. There was a journey and let's go through it. I mean, at school, you've described yourself as a little bit insecure, not the most confident. You didn't do brilliantly in your, I think you failed GCSE maths, for example. Not the most sporty. Mm-hmm. And chemistry and biology. No, I was a bang average student. I just liked English. And I also had, you know, it's like one teacher can change your life, can't they? Mm. I had a very good geography teacher. And he was so good, I thought, well, I'll do what he does for a living. He seems to enjoy it. He's, he's funny. He's interesting. He makes stuff that can be quite dry, and he makes it really interesting. He sort of puts it in a bigger picture, and, yeah, it's cool. I'll do what he does. And I remember he asked me to stay behind after a lesson. I thought, oh, God, Mr. Taggart's going to tell me off. And he said, what do you actually want to do with your life? I said, I'm going to be a teacher. And he goes, don't do that. I said, what do you mean? He goes, you don't get paid much, and you can only afford own label when you go to the supermarket, you can't afford the brand labels. I didn't know what any of that meant. He said, look, you've got a real gift for making people laugh. Do that. Go into it. It used to be called the 80s light entertainment. He said, you need to get into that. I remember walking home from school and I felt like I'd been anointed. I felt like, oh, maybe, maybe I could do something like that. And normally it's just your mum and dad saying that. But when a teacher, it's just a geography teacher, actually says to a young kid, yeah, you can dream. Why, why not shoot for it? Try, do, do that. It was another little light bulb, and I'll always be so grateful to Mr. Taggart. And I tried to track him down about 10 years ago um, to say thank you, but he passed away. Oh, and I spoke to his wife, who was also a teacher at my school, and she said he was so proud of what you did. And he used your, your story as an example to talk to kids who were from backgrounds similar to yours, quite modest, working class, who felt like, well, I can't do that. You know, it's all about who you know or going to Oxford or Cambridge. And I didn't do any of that. And so, yeah, uh, Mr. Taggart was another, what a lovely thing for a teacher to see and say to a kid, hey, you got a bit of a gift for that. Maybe there's something in that. Just that maybe. That's all you need as a kid, as a teenager. Just that little bit of hope, a glimmer, that actually, even though you've got no idea how you're going to go from your tiny little bedroom, um, listening to the radio to actually doing it for real. But yeah, that was a little lightning bulb moment. Yeah, that sense of purpose that you must have there. I mean, I bet it changed the way you walked even, the stride with which you could attack the world. No, I mean, now we're getting into Saturday Night Fever territory, and kind of like, <laughs> you know, uh, John Chavar. I wasn't strutting down the road, no. I, I was still shuffling nervously, trying to avoid the bigger kids. You know what I mean, though. puberty like a year or two before me. <laughs> yeah, I do. You feel a bit lighter. You feel like this, yeah, no, you're, uh, you're alive with the possibilities of what you might be able to do with your life. Exactly. And you're not defined by the, what was it, chemistry that you failed and the maths and whatnot. That, that becomes <laughs> sort of irrelevant. Yes. Yes, as it should be. Yeah, because you you have a newfound purpose. So, of course, armed with this wonderful information, you decide the best way to do that is, and I might be wrong here, correct me if I'm wrong, become a dustman for a short while. Age 16? I did have a a summer job working as a dustman for two and a half months. And I tell you what, I've never been that fit. (laughs) I Um, bet, I bet. Right, it's back in the day when, like, now they have these, like, mechanical arms that come out the side of it. and It's all AI. There's less people doing it. It was back in the day. And also now they've got like 18 different bins, recycling, glass, all these different gardening waste. Then it was like when people didn't realize, probably not a good idea to just chuck 
stuff that won't biodegrade ever into the earth in landfill. So it's just one bin. And, you know, you know, people would just chuck, like, breeze blocks in there, you know, tyres. And they used to weigh a tonne, yeah. you know, and you'd have to go and no one used to bring them to the end of the driveway like they do now. You'd go and lug them all from those back gates and stuff like that. And I, I got in such great shape while I was trying to save money before going away to college doing that. But I'm telling you now, it cost me a couple of girlfriends because the bins would stink, right? And the thing that stinks in a bin is the juice at the bottom, oh, bin yeah, juice, we used to call it. Oh. And you bit of that spilt on you several times a day. No matter how many showers you have, I remember going on a first date with a girl and I was 16. And she kept smelling, she kept saying, I can smell rotten cabbage. Can you smell that? I was like, no, I don't smell anything. I was reeking of my dad's old spice. You know, no, I don't smell any old cabbage. I never heard from her ever again. It was that bin juice. It cost my relationship. And and who knows, Christian, that might have been bin juice from her bin. So how dare she? (laughs) What a great phrase. Bin juice from her bin. And you'll never find out. <laughs> no, I won't. We all have so many unanswered questions in life, and I guess that one will be another one of mine. One of those glorious mysteries. Now, of course, that was your unlucky mm. love on that occasion. However, and I hope you don't mind me saying this, you did meet your love of your life really quite early. And, and in modern terms, at least, you seem to, unless you're a Premier League footballer, you seem to settle down very, very quickly. Yeah, I think I'd always wanted someone that you could settle down with. I needed that, and um, hopefully my wife needed it too. You've been married 23 years, and uh, she moved all over the country uh, when I was serving my radio apprenticeship. You know, I started in Bournemouth, then went up to Liverpool, then started on uh, in London, and then made it onto national radio, and then obviously then took an even bigger leap, moving the other side of the world, coming to Australia three years ago. My wife was like behind all of that. Uh, which is incredible. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to do it, to be honest. That's one of the things that struck out for me in the book was, and of course, all marriages are, are, a, are a two-way street. It's, it's give and take and all the rest of it. But it, it sort of seems to me... Mainly take. <laughs> Mainly take. Well, your wife does seem to be the most agreeable, generous, thoughtful... What? Well, she's, she's... You must have misunderstood the book. There's nothing agreeable <laughs> about my wife. Well, I'm well... agreeable to whatever she says. <laughs> well, you have to be. Don't she's... start spreading these lies she's... about my wife she's being agreeable. Do anything. Well, we'll get onto the craft fair in a little bit. But nonetheless, you know, the way she followed you round with, frankly, I mean, I mean she, she was a lawyer. She decided to, to go to Bournemouth with you when she was, yeah. you know, close to becoming a very well-paid lawyer. You were giving up a job that where you nearly got yourself a Porsche and a BMW. You're giving up a, a well-paid job for a dream that you had no experience in other than being fired from hospital radio. So the faith that she showed in you was very impressive. I mean... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And repeatedly. I mean, she's uh, done that for your entire marriage. Yeah, you're saying this almost accusatory. What's your tone here? Well, Has she asked you to turn on me? As it happens, Christian, there is there is a slightly loaded level here. Now, I want to know oh. what it is. What it, what are the Christmas gifts? What are the birthday gifts? What are the anniversary gifts? How are you? How have you done this? Because, or is it hypnotism? What's the what's the the secret here? Because there must be something. Yeah, I tell you what it is. It's that I met someone who was a free spirit like me, and. When we got into our 40s and we start to realize we'd made our life a bit too small for us and everything that worked didn't feel like it was working anymore. And then we start talking about Australia. And then it became one of those conversations where you sometimes, when you've had a couple of drinks, you know, you go on holiday, you go, let's just move to Spain and become llama farmers. You know, then a week later, you go, what on earth are we thinking about? You never talk about it again. But suddenly we kept talking about Australia. Could I get a radio job out here? And it was great to take another risk to actually say to ourselves, our life is still an adventure. We're not going to choose, like most of us want in our 40s, which is you want predictability. You want to be just, there's so much chaos that starts to happen in your 40s and 50s. As your kids are growing up, your parents are getting older, you're getting older, and you really feel it then. That actually what you want from work is stability, is security. And actually saying that we, still wanted our life to be an adventure for ourselves and our, you know, our daughters was really important to us. It, uh, it's life affirming, isn't it? However you do that, you don't have to move to the other side of the world. There's lots of ways you can do that in your relationship to keep it alive. What actually, what is your journey? 
what what are you saying about yourselves every time you say no what is that what does that mean you know and every time you say yes as well you know do you do you see life as a still as a continual growth story or are you just trying to sort of hang on to everything good luck with that you won't be able to <laughs> you just that's just not the way life goes it's constantly evolving and changing yes exactly well i, I said at the start i talked about the evolution of christian o'connell and I think let's let's talk about the the sort of the catalyst for the big move. Obviously, we've established mm-hmm. your wife was on side. We'll talk about the impact on the girls in due, yeah. in due course, if that's all right. But I think it's time to, to sort of discuss that that moment that you had, another light bulb moment, but a different one, of course, a more sort of pertinent one, where you thought I, I have to do something about my life because something isn't working. Let's uh, well, I'll let you describe it because you'll do it better than I do. Yeah, sure, you do a great job. No, about seven or eight years ago, I had a, um, out of nowhere, suddenly start to have very severe panic attacks. But it was only right before, and I'm talking 10, 20 minutes before, doing my old radio show, which had three million listeners. I went all over the UK. Um, I'd never had any nerves around live TV, stand-up or radio. And so I wasn't just having nerves. It was very severe panic attacks. And I would have to walk out the radio station saying that wasn't very well. And I didn't know what was going on. Um, they came with no warning and it was terrifying. I thought, I, 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 you know, it looked like I would never be able to do live radio again. And then it was like, well, that's how I earn, that's my living. Losing that, the identity I'd wrapped around it like we all do was really, really frightening. And so my wife encouraged me to go and get help. I did get help reluctantly. I didn't want to be a therapy guy. I thought it's, well, I feel embarrassed saying this, but I'm going to be honest. I thought it was a screw ups. And I felt arrogantly, well, I'm not a screw-up. I've done well. Why am I in therapy? This isn't how I wanted my life to go. But actually going to get out, learning some new things, growing through it all, getting back on the radio, and then starting to sort of wake up to what's been going on in my life. For a couple of years, really, um, that changed my life. And now I'm here in Australia. Um, And so, yeah, I think my story really, I'd never talked about any of this for seven years. Never talked about panic attacks. Felt ashamed. My mum and dad only found out two weeks ago. That's how ashamed I felt of them. So suddenly, putting them in a book um, was really not just for me. It was also for my daughters because about a year and a half ago, they were having a tough time, and I was talking about the importance of vulnerability and just being honest. Really, it actually connects us to people. Um, and one of them said to me, "What do you know about it?" And I kept my mouth shut. I didn't want to let them know that I that I'd been in my mind. I thought I was weak. Mm. I wanted them to always think that I was strong as their dad. And actually, I realized, my wife said this, they don't need you to be strong. That's not going to help them for through their teenage years. They need to know that you struggled, but you also got through it. That's what they need to hear. They need to know that their dad's human, that it is okay to struggle. And so I started to talk to them about it, about what happened. And so I started to think about, well, maybe I'll write a book about it. It's such an amazing story the bin, panic attacks, and then getting help, and then deciding to move to Australia, and then coming here, dying on my backside for the first year. They hated me. They didn't want to hear an English guy uninvited, as one of them said, one of the one emails said in the first couple of shows, no one invited you. And he was right. Um, but then going through all of that, what an amazing story for my kids and for other people as well right now in the world, where we've all gone through a stripping away of various certainties in our life. Because of COVID, lots of us now have felt anxiety in different ways, you know, or fear, or even just confusion about what do I want from the rest of my life? What what's showed up here? I really struggled in lockdown. This is frightening. Mm. What, what what changes am I going to make now? What has this revealed to me? It's a really interesting time for us, isn't it? It is, and and mental health certainly the awareness of it, the acceptance of it in that sense as well. You'll know what I mean by that. Across the last, I don't know, five or six years in the UK at least, has become much more prevalent. People are talking. People are having days when they can call the office and say, "I'm having a mental health day," and no questions are asked. It's just fair enough. No problem. You take care of yourself. We'll do what we can to help. Whereas a decade ago, that would have been ignored. It would have been dismissed. Uh, how did your panic attacks present themselves, Christian? Because people have different versions of panic attacks some people literally yeah they do you know what what was it for you for me it was uh literally thought i was going to have a heart attack and, and you know, it, that's what it felt like and, and you think well no, the only way to survive this is to stop doing what i'm trying to do 
take myself away from this dangerous environment. And that for me was the radio studio, which had been nothing but a place of deep joy for me for 20 years of my life. This is why it was so like, oh God, why now? Uh, why, why, why is it here? And did you know so, yeah, at the it time, was, it was, were you aware that, I mean, did no, you, you didn't realise didn't know what a panic attack, attack was. Right, right. No, literally thought I might be, you know, losing my mind. That was my real fear that I was having a breakdown and that I'd never be who I was before. And it was terrifying, utterly terrifying. You turn it into an it, you turn it to, into something that's bigger than you, that overwhelms you. And that's part of the, the, uh, the part of your sort of, you know, the help you get is to realise it isn't an it. It isn't bigger than you. It's part of you that's struggling. And it's to try and, I guess, have a conversation and find out what's going on with that part of you mm. without getting into too much woo-woo. But that's really what helped me was stopping turning it into an it and realizing that this is, this is me. This is me struggling. This part of me struggling. Um, and then getting into touch with that and realize what's been going on. And, and it was a kind of like, it was a, it was a blessing. I can realize now that actually without that, my life would have been poorer. And I couldn't say that seven years ago, you know, um, well, I can now. I can look back and go, and it's a nice story, I think, of hope and perseverance and getting through it and not looking the other way. We're hardwired in tough times to look the other way, where it's, oh, God, what's that? It's all a bit swampy and messy. And actually, when you look towards what's going on, a tough time in your life, there's, there's a tremendous, there's a lot of potential for life change, learning new lessons. Um, making yourself actually grow through it if you do that, if you, if you take that risk. Yeah, I mean, it, what I find fascinating by this, Christian, is there'll, there'll be listeners that were aligned with your views on therapy and so on seven years ago. You, you yeah. Described, the, described yep. the place where you had your therapy as the shed of shame. You were, you know, you were, you thought it was for losers. You've said that yourself and so on. There'll be people that, that are there listening to this going, ah, oh, therapy's not for me, it's dismissive. But there'll also be an audience yeah. that, that have no idea what therapy is. I mean, on the most basic level, Christian, is it just talking? Is it literally just you with someone that knows how to ask the right questions sitting there asking the right questions? Is this as simple as that? It actually is, at the end of the day, what do any of us really want? And this is something what your kids need from parents, is to feel seen and heard. My wife still argues now with me, the same argument we had 23 years ago when we met, where I will, she'll be talking to me and I try and fix it. She says, I just want you to listen. I don't want you to try and fix it. So my teenage daughters, I'll leap in and go, because I don't want them to struggle. Oh my God, that's awful. Let me call the school. Let me sort this out. Like, no, 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 no. I just want you to listen. It's to feel seen and heard. Um, that's what uh, therapy does. And, you know, Greek times, Roman times, they would have village elders every day would sit out in the town square, two chairs and a table, uh, an uh, empty chair opposite them. And people in their 20s and 30s, if they were struggling with something, would just sit down and they would talk to these wisers, philosophers really, and they would just, they would just talk. Go, I'm, I'm really struggling with this at the moment. Um, and they'd feel better. They'd leave 20 minutes later, 10 minutes later, half an hour later. So we've had that and we've lost that. And now, you know, you have this thing where a lot of people don't know how to talk about it. They suffer in silence. And that's the worst thing you can do about it. I think sometimes the way we talk to ourselves, that inner critic, that inner heckler, is so cruel. You'd never speak to your other half or a partner like that or a friend. Otherwise, you'd have no friends. Mm. But we're very easy to beat ourselves up. And that, that doesn't help either. That judgmental voice going, you're not going to pay someone just to listen to you whine for an hour. That, you know, if you hurt your back, you go and see an osteopath, the chiropractor, you wouldn't even think about it. What is it when spiritually, and that's what mental health really is. It's, it's about our spirituality. That isn't religious. It's just about us, our happiness, how we deal with our emotions the ones we like, the ones we don't like. It's all of that. You know, we, we do need help with that. We don't learn any of this at school. Our parents weren't sort of given that kind of awareness. We have a bit more awareness. But how are we meant to know all this stuff to deal with everything that's going on in life? And now it's, a, it's so much more demanding. The demands on our times. There are no nine-to-five jobs anymore, you know. And so how, do you, how are you meant to deal with all the chaos that's around us and all that? the demands on it all. You, you need help with that. Yes, you're so right. There's a, there's a huge amount of noise these days that when you and I started out in this crazy career oh. in showbiz just didn't exist. And now it's very there and you are judged constantly and you can't... Well, it's everywhere. It. It's not yeah. just showbiz. It's it's life. 
Yeah. You know, it's not unique to showbiz. It's no. like whatever job you do, you'll have these demands on you now and extra pressures. And it's like, how do you navigate yourself through that? It's, it's human to struggle. What isn't human is to think that you can't get help, you know. And that might be, to begin with, speaking to a friend, speaking to your other half to say, hey, do you know what? I'm really struggling right now to live up to this kind of persona of who I think I need to be in the family or as a provider. Just starting it, just starting the conversation is, is half of it. If you're enjoying the Andy J podcast, we'd love a review. In fact, if you're enjoying the show, why not tell your friends? Podcasts live and die on, well, often word of mouth, so please tell your friends. Like, subscribe, review, and share. Thank you. Did it have a big impact as well for you, Christian, because, of course, you were the guy that people woke up to. They expected a dose of sunshine from you. But if you weren't feeling it in real life, how could you project it? Um, no, I, I always, you know what, I, I've always been very lucky. What radio is for me is an escape bubble. For those couple of hours that I'm on air, I was grateful for it in tough times because I could, I could, uh, create, uh, you know, an atmosphere, a radio show, a little universe, which is what radio shows are, place a kind of, of hope and joy for the listeners. And I think they realize at times also for me. Uh, and so, no, I was lucky that I had that. You know, that's what also saved me. It wasn't like I was being fake or anything. And now, going through that, knowing what it's like to have despair in your life, it's made me a lot more, I do know, just have a lot more empathy for people, you know, and that's how it is a dad, most importantly, let alone being a talker on the radio. And so now it has changed how I do radio. It's changed my whole life. And that's a, that's a good thing. Do you know, Christian, in a, in a sort of slightly, this is a weird comparison, but but work with me and see if this see if this makes sense. Sure. It sounds to me almost like you've had the, the human equivalent of, I often say that you should add in a simulated car accident to the, to the, to the driving test so that new drivers understand that they're not invincible when they get in a car. You know what I mean? And if they actually have an accident or a simulated one at the very least, they'll realise the danger that they have behind the wheel and, and how they have to be careful and walk, uh, walk cautiously on it. And it feels to me like you had been driving along for those 30 plus years, 35 years with nothing to worry about. You were just doing fine. You know, there were no speed bumps, there were no challenges. And suddenly out of nowhere, you, you have a car crash and you realise that actually it can all crumble apart very quickly. Um. I tell you what it actually was was like uh, these things. When you say they came out of nowhere, if I'm honest now, I can see that actually things have been there have been little early rumblings and warning signs for a couple of years, and I'd use work as a distraction. I'll make more stuff. I write children's books. I'll go on stand-up tours. Some of that was coming out of the fact that I want to do something new and I love creating new things. And also, there's a part of it too which was distraction. And at times, I used alcohol as well to try and like quieten down this rumbling thing. I didn't really know what it was. Um, and so, no, it, it, it didn't come out of nowhere. It felt like that, but actually it didn't. And I'm sure if people, you know, listen to this, they probably can trace back, even if they're experiencing some uncertainty in their own life, they can go, actually, you know what? I think I first started to feel this then. Um, so, yeah, it rarely comes out of nowhere. It feels like that, but actually with a bit of help and guidance, you can start to sort of, Join the dots, looking at it uh, going backwards. So you have a sort of shadow following you for a short while before it happens. <laughs> Very grand, poetic way. Yes, I think we all have some kind of shadow, don't we? Well, I've got to salvage it somehow, Christian, because my car crash analogy just died with an um. So, you know, <laughs> I've, I've got to try and pull it back slightly and, uh, and try and get aligned with where your head's at. Cause that... No, 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 it was, it, was a good, it was a good analogy, okay? <laughs> it's okay, you don't need to make me feel better. I stacked it, I'm all right with that. <laughs> that's, that's good well, you, you had the car crash. I think you're right, you just said that I was in a car crash. Now we found out you were in the car crash. Hey, I'm okay with that, I've had plenty. Let's not get lost in this metaphor. <laughs> Many speeding fines as well. We're all good. <laughs> We're all good. So there we go. You have these attacks. You start to get the help. You, head, you visit the shed. You spend a lot of time working on yourself. And, and you rebuild. You regroup and everything's going fine. However, 
the decision is made that a new adventure is needed. That I, I'm not convinced that's connected to the panic attacks, though, Christian. I, I feel like these are two separate things. Is, is, is that right? How do you mean? Well, in a way, the sort of timeline sounds like had the panic attacks, had some challenges on UK radio, but with you know, with working through it with the therapist, everything, everything was fine again. And you were, you were still doing your shows and, and you were still working on yourself and things were moving forward. Great. I'm not, what I'm saying is that I don't feel that you then heading to Australia was necessarily directly connected to the panic attacks. I feel that. that oh was, no, no. Do you see no, what I mean? No, you're quite right. Yeah. Cause a lot of people said, uh, oh, so did. And so then like, then like go, so yeah. And then you decide to move to Australia. I was like, no, no, no. That would be a very dumb reaction. Yeah to have an anxiety, to put yourself into a far greater, more stressful situation, starting a new life, your kids at schools, you on, on radio as an unknown in a very, very competitive marketplace that is Australian radio. It's far more on an edge here than it is in the UK. It's ruthless here, really ruthless. So no, it was about realizing that I'd lost my mojo and actually I, I was in a comfort zone and Nothing great can come out of that in life. And it'd been like that for a couple of years. And um, I needed a new challenge. I wanted a new, a real challenge. And I guess I could go on to another radio station. That felt like a sideways move. It didn't mm. feel like honoring what I really love doing, which is taking another big leap. My wife wanted that. I did. And that's when we started talking about Australia. I guess what the panic attacks did is it makes you wake up to your life. Uh, it's like a rude awakening, but actually it was the best kind. It had to be some kind of violent rupture to get me to stop forcing me to look at it all, all that was going on and start to realize, that, oh, right. What is the story I'm not wanting to be honest about here? I think all of us have a story we don't want to tell or don't want to acknowledge. You know, we're trying to ignore it or hide it because it feels like too much to actually admit to it or how powerful it might be or that we can't handle that truth. And so, yeah, we then start talking about Australia, but no, no not related at all, no. No. Uh, no therapist either would say, you know what you need to do? Yeah. Move to the other side of the world. Yeah. You keep mentioning how much you love neighbours. Well, maybe that's the solution. Yeah, no, that's... Uh, that's... <laughs> not the right shout. I remember, Christian, I distinctly remember learning or hearing that you were moving to Australia. And, and my reaction at the time was, well, you must have family there or something. You know what I mean? It, there, there must, maybe your wife is no. from Australia or something like no, that. No, no one. not the we case know, at all, We knew it? no one. No, we knew no one. Um, yeah, people that we moved to, so you've got family and friends here. No, 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 not no, anyone. Uh, which then it was like, oh, this is, no wonder this is hard. We have no friends. Yeah. You know, we don't know anything. But also, what an amazing thing to go through. I mean, it's crazy the first year. So many mistakes and just researching everything you take for granted in your life. Where's the doctor? Where's the dentist? You know, um, all that stuff. You know, where do you get your Wi-Fi? I don't even have a phone. You can't get this phone because you don't have any banking records. Oh. All this stuff, you know, no one... When you watch those TV shows, Escape to the Sun, they don't warn you about this. Yes. You know, and all the permits you need and all this. What bin lid does that? And there are about 18 different bin lids here or go out on certain days. So, um, yeah, everything was just like learning and building a life. It was like we were in witness protection uh, for, a, for a while. Everything was just so confusing, you know, and people weren't, they couldn't believe why all the Australians get going, why have you come here? Why are you here? They were like, well, to them, they, they still hold in high esteem London and, you know, the UK. And like, why would you come here? A lot of them thought I'd escaped a scandal. I love <laughs> That's that. the way we live. Love it. Yeah, like I've been somehow cancelled <laughs> in the UK, and this is the only reason he's here. Like when they used to send, you know, convicts over, <laughs> I was part of a new wave of disgraced former DJs being sent out to um, serve your time in Australia. But I was like, no, no, I've cho chosen to come here. You know, so yeah, everything was just suspicious about us. They didn't quite buy why we we're here, um, but it was an it was also incredibly exciting too. Well, I think it's also because you landed into a high profile, albeit it took you a long time to establish it. But nonetheless, you it's a it's a showbiz job that you moved for. You know, you managed to. It's we can't pretend that you didn't have the radio gig lined up in advance. You you'd spent a long time working on it and making sure there was a job to go yeah. to, which is the, obviously the right way. Absolutely. To do it. 
But it's not yeah. like, you know, I remember there used to be a scheme where it was very easy for, for Brits under 30 to, to emigrate to Australia, provided they had a skill, a tangible skill that could service the mm. nation, be it a plumber. What are you or saying? What are you going with this? What, what, what are you going with this? You're saying I don't have skill. You got all the skills. There's a the subject here. We both know you've got it. You're very suspicious of me. I love that. But the fact, mm, the, fact mm. the fact of the matter is, though, Christian, you 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 moved to a job where you were performing immediately for a new crowd, a new audience, a suspicious yeah. audience, one you had to win over. But nonetheless, it's not like you were just moving and getting your feet under the table and slowly learning about the area. Yeah, you were straight. Yeah, in. that was strange. Yeah, it was strange because you're the other side of the world. And you don't have the kind of cultural shorthand that we all have uh, when you're on radio in the UK. You know the punchlines. You know the TV shows we all grew up with. You've got a shared history, haven't you? Exactly. England not being very England not being very good at football. Um, it was. I had to learn that from scratch. I stood out. Radio is about intimacy, and I was not intimate with them. I had an accent that didn't sound like them. They knew I wasn't from round there. He doesn't know about our sports. Um, you know, and so I had to go against all of that. I had no goodwill, no goodwill whatsoever. But I came looking for a challenge. I came because I'd lost my mojo. I really had to roll my sleeves up. I was building a radio show from scratch. And whilst it was really hard, it was also the single most exciting thing I've ever done in my life. And so it's both, both of those. Yes, which is, in actual fact, it was exactly what you were looking for. You set out for that adventure, that, that you know, kickstart your heart, as it were, that shot of adrenaline. And sure, there were plenty of hills to climb, but that's what you chose to do. That's what you wanted. Yeah, in the first couple of months, though, I was like, oh, God. Oh, you know, I'd asked the universe for a new, <laughs> new challenge. Suddenly it gave me this one. I'd be like, going, oh, could I have a smaller one? <laughs> um, yeah. Can I have a challenge light? How about guns? You know, can I just... <laughs> Yes, go, Isle of Wight. How about I move to the Isle of Wight and <laughs> start getting there? Um, oh, this was too much of a challenge. I don't think I'm up to this. You know, this is just, no, this is crazy. This feels brutal. Why have I done this? It's, it's just everywhere. And it was just like, middle-aged men, you don't have enough time to even hang out with your own friends. Try making new friends when you're in your middle ages, you're in your 40s. Where are you meant to make new friends? Yeah, especially you with know, ones that you, you have kind no of, common ground with as well. Yeah, yeah. Oh, nightmare. My wife, women make friends a lot easier, generally speaking. The sisterhood is always recruiting. The brotherhood isn't. It's quite suspicious of new people from you know overseas coming in and like, hmm, okay, well, you've got to serve your time. And so, yeah, it was even just, fun, even just having friends. I remember like a couple of weeks in on a Friday, get my phone out about to call a friend. Oh, it'd be nice to go out for a few beers and just talk about how hard this is. And I was, oh, I, I, I can't call anyone. There's no one I don't to call. have. No, I had no listeners, no, no, no mates. I was just like, why have I done this? I mean, what an idiot! This became quite, quite serious thing, actually, Christian. You know, you, you were oh, trying to lonely. I, <laughs> you were trying to mandate with the Uber driver at one point. Yeah, there was a low point where my wife and I were in an Uber and I was getting on with the Uber driver. It was a Canadian guy who moved to Melbourne, Australia about five years before I did. And my wife texted me next to me saying, ask him for his number. And I was like, I can't, can't do that. That's like desperate. And then she texted me going, but you are desperate. <laughs> so she gets out ahead of me, does the whole head nod, you know, women do like, ask yep. him for his number. So I go to him, I, I go, I'm cringing him. I said, hey, it's really nice chatting to you. It'd be nice to go out for a beer sometime. He looked utterly confused. <laughs> uh, what are you doing? And I went, let's swap numbers. He went, right, okay. And you know when you're like, oh, God, this yeah. is just, this is a mistake. We swap numbers. I wait a couple of hours. Don't appear too keen. Um, I, send him a t I send him a text going, hey, that was a really great chat. Let's go out for a few beers. When's good in the next week? I, to this day, two years later, I haven't heard back from him. <laughs> I, I, you laugh now, but I came very close to going, do you know what? This is pack up. I can't take, I can't even get a beer with an Uber driver. Yeah. What hope is there for me here? <laughs> Did you give him a rating at least? <laughs> Did you give him five stars? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah. Oh dear. 
Oh dear. Well, of course, I mean, we're laughing now, but I can completely appreciate it must have been such a challenge because you don't have that, you know, new dads will understand this, for example. you yeah. A lot of new dads will, will move to a new area. They enter a new space because they become a new dad. You've got the NCT and, you know, you've got other dads of similar age children to connect with. Whereas your kids, your girls are of the age where they don't want you dropping them off at school and being seen. You have to be as anonymous as possible. So you can't even meet the parents. Yeah. No, and yeah, and also at their age, they were going into being teenagers, which is like the toughest part of any childhood, isn't it? And suddenly they're the other side of the world, mm. you know, and their dad is this high-profile English guy that's been brought out here with a huge backlash. And the title of my book about all this is called No One Listens to Your Dad's Show. And it's what a 13-year-old said to my daughter in the first couple of months in the school playground. Went up to her and goes, no one listens to your dad's radio show. And she was right. <laughs> the ratings weren't great. And I remember my daughter thought it was hilarious. But I remember at the time thinking, if, if I survive this, if I get through this, if I get through this, and I write a book about it, I'm going to call it no one listens to your dad's show. I'm going to use that sledge, um, that burn, that roast. Yeah, I'll, I'll have that. i use that pain, you know, that humiliation, that shame, and I'll, and I'll use it. And so I have. It's my, it's my way of owning it. But I remember at the time thinking, this is just relentless. I've got no listeners, no mates, and now I'm being bullied in the school playground. Mm. And I'm 47. You know, how much more of this? Why don't I just buy a Harley Davidson or have that kind of midlife crisis? Why did I pick this? Yeah, you could have grown a massive beard, to be fair. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. It would have been a lot easier for everyone. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, and just maybe for next time, you know, maybe when we when we have the 50th, couple of years away, maybe go for the massive beard. You're right, good morning. Just get a beard, it's easier, yeah. it's cheaper. Come yeah. on, it's free, <laughs> do that. Just go with that, yeah, see what happens. But yeah. of course, you know, you yeah. you are a family man, you do have your two daughters, you've mentioned obviously that they were at school and you got sledged via them and so on, but it, it wasn't easy, especially to start with for them, which must have also made it very, very difficult emotionally for you, seeing them not necessarily hitting their stride in a new environment and a new school to start with. Yeah, that was hard, harder than the rating struggling. Yeah. No, it, honestly, it was. No, no parents want that, and you couldn't help them. Uh, you know, you, you're on the outside a bit, and I, I personally felt very guilty. Like I'd made a tough situation starting to get into your teenhood, and I'd made it worse by bringing them to the other side of the world. Um, I, I blame myself. I had a lot of guilt around it actually, and my wife kept saying, "Look, you know," my wife kept saying, "Look, hang in there. It will change." They'd, they'd be having a tough time back in the UK. It's it's the age. But I blame myself, and it was very hard, and we changed schools twice in the first six months. Gosh. And so there was, there was, it was too much for them at times. However, um, you know, three years on, what it's given them in terms of resilience, I'm telling you now, will change their lives. You know, it, that's, not, that's the most important thing for any of us as parents to get our kids is resilience, grit to know that it's going to be hard and you're going to have to get yourself through it. Mm. Um, and they have got themselves through it. They got themselves through it, actually. Not not me or their, or their mum. And that's, what a lesson. They won't feel it yet. I'm telling you now, five years' time, six, seven years' time, they're going to, they're going to know there was before Australia and after it and actually what they really learned from it. And I think that could actually be, I had to tell myself that, that actually could that could make the difference in terms of how they handle tough times in their lives. I hope so. Yes, that's the power of time, isn't it? Because like you, I mean, I have three sons. And if I saw, if I made a huge decision on behalf of the family and I saw oh. the impact it was having on them, oh, I don't know. Break your heart, wouldn't it? Oh, I'd, it would destroy me. I'd feel like the worst dad on the planet. So, And it did, it, it did a couple of times. There were a lot of very late night, tearful conversations between me and my wife. And I said, this is too much. I'm, I'm, let, let's go back. Let's end it now. You know, this was just, this was just not the right thing. Yeah. You know, she's like, no, no, I, just please, just hang in there. And I, I needed to hear that. I'm sure deep down inside, she must have been going, maybe he's right, but let's just hang in there. Um, but again, it showed her, her strength, you know, holding it all together for all of us, to be honest. Yes, I guess if she had just agreed with you, it would have been back on the train to, to UKsville, and that would have been that. Suddenly you and I are doing this radio show together. 
Well, uh, do you know, and I'd love that, Christian. That would be great fun. But you don't. I'd see it as kind of like radio's Tango and Cash. I don't know who's who, but um, <laughs> just floating it out there. Well, you, uh, I'll see your Tango and Cash, and I'll raise you Con Air. <laughs> now you your references be, are getting better than that car crash uh, <laughs> stuff earlier. Okay, you've moved on with style. You could be Nicolas Cage, and I'll be Steve Buscemi. What do you reckon? I'm happy. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll talk to talk on airwaves. <laughs> there you yeah. go. It's. I mean, I've I've owned it before. Now, of course, you talk about and you've you've referenced this plenty. The the struggle you had with the listeners, the ratings, and so on. They did turn around. You you now you now host the most successful breakfast show that Australia's ever had. I mean, that's that's not a small thing to be able to say, and it must give you a great sense of glory. But but in no small part is that down to the story of two incredible individuals who you reference in the book, Robin and Peter. Would you like to talk about them? Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, the, the show struggled for the first year and a half, and then it went to number one. Um, it's never happened in Australian radio history that an outsider, an unknown, is ever in a big city, um, has ever got the number one spot. You know, it's done by, same as UK, well-known people who people know. Um, and and that, it changed it, it changed how we thought about radio here, to be honest, um, which is great. But, you know, when people go, so how did you get the show to, to number one? I've got no idea. I couldn't tell you. I can't tell you how to design that radio show. Um, I don't want to do that radio show. But what did happen here is about nine months in, a man called Peter, Peter Logan, emailed me saying that he had terminal bowel cancer. It was in his mid-50s. In Australia, this is an amazing thing, right? When men turn 50, they get sent. It takes less than 20 seconds, a bowel screening test, self-administered. It's called the poo test. Mm. He didn't bother doing it like most men. He just shoved at the back of his cupboard. And then three years later, he's having terrible problems, and he's diagnosed having bowel cancer. And they go, what a shame. You come three years ago, this is treatable, but you are going to, you're going to lose your life to it. He was emailing me just saying, can you read this out as a warning story to advise your older listeners in your 50s, do the test. I rang him because of, uh, I, I don't know, I just had a thing like, I, I just, I, I, it, it really touched my heart that he'd actually seen something in me to say, hey, you know, I'm trusting this story with you, this vulnerable story. So I rang him and he was such a great talker. So why don't you come on the show this week? You tell them, it'd be much better from me. And the radio station and producers around me were like, you, you can't put cancer on in the morning. No one wants to hear it in the morning. I said, look, no one wants to talk about cancer ever. Mm. I said, his story is life-saving. Uh, I, 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 what's more important to me to say on the radio this week than that? So we got him on. He was amazing. He spoke really well. He was funny. He was vital. And at the end, I said, what are you really here to share with us? And he had his daughters with him who were in their early 20s. And he said, those are my daughters there. I'm not going to walk them down the aisle. And that breaks my heart because the vanity stopped me doing a 20-second test. Please do the test. Mm. And it was so powerful. The Australian Cancer Council, within three weeks, they told us there'd been a 600% increase in people um, returning the kits. And I thought, what an amazing... He literally saved lives. Yeah. Andy, what an incredible thing to do. Yeah. And so the change, the audience then saw me differently. They didn't see me as a British guy. They didn't see me as someone trying to be funny or their new friend, you know, sell them something or push myself on them. They just saw, I don't know, they just saw me differently and it connected me to them. Again, it was about, I guess, vulnerability. It made me rethink. It was a real like, all oh, right, okay maybe there's something else I could be doing on the radio. And that's, you know, when these things present themselves to talk about these kind of emotions that we, we don't want to talk about. And so, yeah, it opened everything up was, was that man, Peter Logan, he died a year and a half ago. And, um, we swapped emails about two days before he passed. And I remember his, his last email to me said, keep up the humor. Don't forget the human. And I have that on a post-it note, Andy, right by my computer. And every radio show before I start at 6 a.m. in the morning, I think about that one line. Yeah. You know, keep up the humor, don't forget the human. And what a lovely 
what a lovely lesson he he gave me as well, and what he showed me as well. I'll always be very grateful for what um, what Peter did. So yeah, there's no big thing I did on air. I guess what did you know? What Peter helped it, and it, he he showed me a way that actually we do connect with each other through our vulnerabilities, and there's not there's not enough of that in the world. We're all trying to prove we're somebody else. We're all trying to prove we're more confident. You know, look at Instagram with the fake filters. We're all trying to, you know, kid ourselves and everybody else. We've got this great lifestyle when we're all secretly we're struggling. It's exhausting, isn't it? Yeah. Fake filters, you know, selfies. You know, it's like a photo shoot when you go on holiday. Well, we could go on holiday. Um, and so actually when you talk about, I guess, the messier parts of life, which are life, something magical can happen. Why are we drawn to those songs about that? And movies about it. Why can't we talk about that ourselves? No, absolutely. And it's, and that's the thing. Obviously, Peter was incredible for reaching out to you for sharing his story, and 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 the impact that had was was fantastic. But it was also your decision to press the case. And he co-hosted the show with you. You made T-shirts with him on it, and posters, and so on ahead of the broadcast. So you. You put the attention where it needed to be. And actually, that is the most excellent, incredible use of audience reach, which you have, that you can imagine. You've changed the world there by doing that. And, and bravo to you for that, man. That's, that's great. Well, I, 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 I can't take the credit for that. But bless you. But that's Peter Logan. That's a man who's dying of cancer, actually sending an email saying, use what's going on with me. Let me... Let me uh, let me give people a warning. Let me try and stop somebody else having this. That's a very generous, selfless thing to do when you must be riddled with regret, you know, about what you did and be angry at yourself, really, and the hand you've been dealt. But he didn't choose that. He, it was it gave him meaning in his life and purpose when it had been stripped away from him by cancer, like it is so many people we, we hold very dear. Yes, and, and you're absolutely right. I'm not taking credit away from Peter. But what I'm saying is you read the email and you responded to it. You could have just scum, spin Let's through the email. Let's not fall out. No, Let's not right. fall out over this, my friend. It's okay. <laughs> you gave him the platform, Christian. That's what I'm saying. A lot of other broadcasters, especially on The Breakfast Show, as you've already asserted, would have just gone, oh, that's, that's one for drive time maybe. Or we'll, we'll just kick that down the can slightly. <laughs> you know? I don't know. Who knows? You, yeah, who knows? You do. Know. You're just being modest. Uh, and also there was... No, I don't know. Yeah, you do. Come on. And then there was the story of Robin, which which has touched my heart as well, reading about that. That must have been an incredibly moving moment for you. Uh, would you like to tell us about that, the, the pay-your-bills story? Yeah, the, the radio station were doing this competition, what many radio stations do, called Pay Your Bills. And I just got an email from this woman called Robin. She'd lost both of her sons within a couple of years of each other. They're in their 20s. And... She just wanted money for a headstone for both of them to remember them by. And I was so moved by it. I thought, well, we've got to help her out. And so I said, let's get her on the show. And again, people are like, oh, this is so dark. I'm like, well, let's help her out. I mean, what? She just wants a headstone to remember her two boys by something permanent when there was no permanence now. Everything had been taken away from her. We got her on air. She was lovely. And then... It was so heartbreaking hearing her talk about the grief at losing her two sons. I couldn't help but think about myself as a dad. And I wasn't on the radio. I wasn't a DJ. I was a dad. I suddenly wanted to go home and just hug my daughters. Mm. And then something really embarrassing started to happen. It was 10 past 7 on a Thursday morning. I started to, I was shaking with the effort of not crying. And I could see my team look around me like, what is he doing? What's the English guy doing? And then I start to cry on air. I can't, I can't hold it in. Robin starts apologizing and trying to make me okay when she's the one who's lost her, um, her sons and is, and, is, and, is, and is struggling just to get a headstone. We got other headstone. And I remember a couple of weeks later, she sent me a photo of her by it. And uh, it's a photo I always hold dear. And the incredible thing about the photo is she's smiling in it. It's like she finally, I don't know, just managed to do some small thing, a headstone for boys. No, I don't know. The Robin story was just one that, again, we had, I said to her on air, hey, look, we'll we're, we're, we're sort this out, even if I pay for it myself. But after that, we went to a song that we're calling in. 
I had kids calling in wanting to donate their pocket money to chip in towards it. And it was just like, my God, this is incredible. We want to help each other. We're hardwired to help each other. Why is it that we can't extend that friendship sometimes to ourselves? You know, that we find it, she felt embarrassed asking for help. And I was like, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be able to help you out after everything you've gone through. Mm. So yeah, there were these human moments, to be honest, about what made a show number one. I feel a bit vulgar even saying that that made it number one. But if I'm really honest, those things changed my life and changed how I did the radio show then about, okay, I'm not going to shy away from vulnerability. It's not like every day. It's like I go, it's 10 past 8 in the morning, time for a vulnerability corner. <laughs> but when those, when those moments present themselves or there's an invitation, I'm not going to shy away anymore. Yes. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to use that. I'll take that. And you create these little pockets of magic, you know, and that's what I've really loved about coming here. As much as I had 20 years of experience, I actually, I don't know, I've, I've become more myself. That's what's happened over the last three years as a person on air and off air. And that's, that's really interesting. Yeah, I've used the word evolution of Christian O'Connell a couple of times now and the, the, the sort of new enlightened you. I, I like you. I like it. Well, it's what we all are, I hope, is evolving somewhere. If you're not evolving, then you're going the other way and you, you don't want that. No. No, quite. But you've, it sounds to me, Christian, that you're in a good place. And uh, I, I must say, the book is, is so much fun and it's fascinating. And of course, thank you. it's a story of adventure. Thanks, it's a story of challenge. It's a yeah. story of taking risks. But also, it's a, it's a really great read just about fatherhood, actually. Thanks for saying that, because actually, a couple of guys have emailed me midway through the book um, when I talk about how in fatherhood, Sometimes you're going to be doing something with your children, son or daughter, and it will be the last time you get to play imaginary tee shots. You don't know you've done it for the last time. And then suddenly when you realize, oh, we're not doing that anymore, yeah. you would do anything to go back and play that game that you used to get bored of. You'd be looking at your watch, thinking about all the things you had to get through, into the dishwasher and all that. And so, so many guys midway through have actually got a little bit tearful and then put the book down and go on and found their son or their daughter and go, hey, do you want to do something? And I've loved that. How amazing is that? Yeah. Isn't that great? It and is. so, yeah, it is, a, it is about what I've learned through getting it wrong and how there needs to be a different kind of dad when they're teenagers. And I didn't know that. I had to learn and unlearn a whole load of stuff about what they need from you. They don't need you pretending to be invincible. That isn't going to help them. They need you to actually be real. They need to see that you're vulnerable, that you struggle, and you can still get through it. Absolutely. Oh, brilliant. Christian, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've, I've really enjoyed our chat. Oh, thank you. Thanks for all your questions. I can tell. You, I, I, I've really enjoyed it. Um, thank you very much. You're very good at what you do. And I can tell that the book has opened stuff up in you. So thanks for being open to that. It's... Um, Thank you. It's really touched me. It's humbled me, actually. Thank you. Oh, bless you. Well, well, uh, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. I wish you only success for the future. Obviously, Conair, Tango and Cash partnership is ready and waiting. Should it's going to happen. I'd like that. You talk to management. Let's do the deal. Let's like do the that. deal. I'd like that. Take it easy, my friend. Have a, have a great continuation of, well, your adventure. And you. Make your life an adventure, too, and I hope to catch up with you soon. I look, I look forward, forward to, to seeing what you do now. Bless you. Brilliant. Take care, Christian. Have a good one. Thank you very much, Andy. That was lovely. I really enjoyed that. Thank you, man. That was really. I hope really so, mate. I I always think sometimes the best this can ever go in a in interview is actually when it stops being an interview. And like we've just done a couple of times, I was thinking, oh, this is meant to be a um like an interview for a radio show because I'm just having a great chat with you, like we're in a bar and we're sharing a bottle of wine. I think that actually is the highest we can ever get it to is when we turn it into a, a conversation you know, that's funny, interesting, real. And you've done that. You created that. So well done, mate. Great job. Well done. Oh, Brilliant work. You. Well, it was thanks to you and your excellent book and your, and your brilliance. So I really, really appreciate it. No, you, uh, you're, you're very, you're very, you do the right kind of interviewing. You've got the questions. You've thought about a structure, but you don't, you're not nailed to it. You'll come back to it uh, effortlessly, but you also stayed where I was in it. And not many of us do that. Um, that's a high level of doing what you're doing. So, uh, well done. Um, yeah. 
well done, mate. That was really, really great. I loved it. It's just like, I love chats like this where you're like, I really hope that your listeners get something from it as well. Oh, they're, they're bound to. I mean, how could they not? It's, it's, it's just so impactful. The, the way you share your openness and, and, and the way you tell a yarn that is just so powerful. It's, ah, it's brilliant. It's infectious. Absolutely infectious. Well, bless you. Thank you very much, Andy, for your enthusiasm and support of the book as well. Um, and your time. I've loved this. Me too. I really appreciate it, Christian. You have a great, well, I guess it's, it's the middle of the night now. Pleasure. And listen, no, no, what is it now? Half eight in the evening. You ever, in a couple of months down the line, want to get, you know, just catch up with Christian, see what's going on in Australia, whether it's during the Olympics or, or whatever. Just, you know, I don't know if you've got my email, but I'll make sure you get my email. Just shoot me a, and I, very easy to do, mate. Very easy to do. Oh, brilliant. Well, we've got each other's numbers. I'll, I'll send you a WhatsApp in a minute. Oh, just, there you go. Just to say thank yeah, you. do that. That would be great. Yeah. Amazing. Do that. I, I'd have Good a luck to you, you my if friend. I was driving an Uber, that's for sure. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Brilliant. Take You're it too easy, kind. Person. All the very best. All right. Thanks, man. There we go. I thought he was brilliant. I want to be, sometimes you do come out of these conversations, you want to be someone's friend. I can tell you, Christian has been brilliant. You know, every now and again, I tell you when people have sent lovely messages and Christian is up there on my, on my sort of list of people that have been really lovely afterwards. Christian is on that sort of top 10 list. He's been really lovely. Richard Hammond has been lovely. Mary Portis has been lovely. James Lance and, and various others. But yeah, Christian stands out because he's sent some lovely messages and I, I sincerely hope we, um, we connect again. He was great company. What a conversation. What a guy. What a story. Ah, brilliant. Um, Listen, you go well. Have a lovely week. We will be bringing you more fascinating conversations that I hope you'll enjoy every week here on the Andy J podcast. Take care. Go well. Make someone smile. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast. And I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher.